as it's always very, very difficult to preach to a screen, and we're glad that many of you are watching online. Some of you will be watching later today because you don't have good internet and you have to wait till it's been saved. Uh, so wherever we are as the Church of Jesus Christ today, it's good to be able to worship the Lord together, and it's good to continue as we're doing in this Gospel of Mark, and we are doing this journey together of following to the cross, the tomb, and beyond. And today, Pastor Mike has already read our scripture for us, and that's from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. Now, you're going to think that I'm getting childish on you, but um, I brought this toy today because I was thinking about my children had a Tupperware one, something similar, and I remember them, almost every one of our children, I remember them, they would come to that phase and that time in their lives as a toddler when they would take the square piece and try to get it in the circle. And no matter how hard they would try, it just wouldn't fit. And so they try and try and try, and finally they would have to get to a place where they would just have to concede and give up and put the square in the square and put the circle in the circle. And why do I say that? Because they expected somehow that they were going to force that square into a circle. That was their expectation. Uh, last week, we looked at that wonderful moment when the disciples come to a place and Peter's the spokesperson and they come to this place of confession, right? They come to this place of confession. We saw that in verses 27 to 30. And now this week, we're continuing on in that because it's not just about the disciples' confession. It's also about the disciples' lifestyle. Remember that profound moment when Peter says after Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter comes to this place and he says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. Uh, Jesus knew in his day there were what we call the messianic expectations. Yes, Peter came to a place where he said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But all of the disciples had their preconceived ideas, their expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Very similar to trying to take a square and stick it in a round hole. It doesn't work. And so the messianic expectations around Jesus in his day were that he would be a great priest or he would be a great prophet. Or, of course, the most popular was that he would be the greatest king ever, just like King David, a warrior king who would now come in and take over Rome and get rid of them. As we read our passage today, we need to remind ourselves that these were very dangerous times. There were revolutionaries. Jesus was not the first one that somebody would say oh, it was a Messiah. They had heard all these revolutionaries that had come. We know zealots is that name that we often see in scriptures. They had come and they were the ones and they had put their hope in them and they were going to overturn the Romans and only instead they were frauds and they were great letdowns and they end up being crucified on a Roman cross. And with them died their movement. This is why even this morning in our reading through the Gospel of Mark for Lent, we looked at that passage about John the Baptist being beheaded and also seeing him, this great mighty man of God, again killed under the hands of the Romans would have been just one big letdown. Now, they had put all these hopes and aspirations and expectations in Jesus. 
And so we see with this going on last week, Jesus now begins to teach them. He says, right, I must suffer many things and be rejected. And so he begins to teach them. He begins to say to them, we're not going to walk away from danger. My destiny is I'm going to walk right to Jerusalem. I'm going to walk right into danger. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. He was going to be the suffering Messiah. And we've had some discussion in Bible study about that because ultimately, you know, we look at now with hindsight, we understand the reason for the cross we think of Isaiah 52 and 53, that we are told that the Messiah was a suffering Messiah. But we need to understand in their mindset, there was no idea or concept of a suffering Messiah because he was supposed to be a triumphant king, not a suffering Messiah. And so Jesus says to them, he must suffer many things. He's trying to teach them. He's trying to change their opinion now, he doesn't use the term Messiah. We said last week, you'll see that towards the end of Mark, as he stands before the high priest, and he's asked if he is the Messiah. And Jesus will pronounce in that moment, I am, and he'll say he's the Messiah. But in our passage today, what we see is Jesus uses this term, son of man. It was an Old Testament term. It was about the end-time figure, Daniel, you'll find in the book of Daniel. The Son of Man will usher in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus doesn't refer to himself in the title Messiah. He uses this term, Son of Man. Why? Because it didn't have any preconceived aspirations or ideas. He didn't want to use the term that they had used. He goes on to say that the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, so it's not just the Romans who are against him. As we will see, it will also be the Sanhedrin. It will be the Jewish leaders. This is not something that the disciples want to hear either. These are the ones, it's the Jewish high court that he will stand before, and they will also reject him. And so we can clearly see that he is not fitting any of their expectations. He says he must this version. Others say it was necessary, it is necessary, that the Son of Man will suffer, die, and rise again. Who's decided it's necessary? Rome? <laughs> the Jews? Sanhedrin? No, it will be God's plan. God the Father had a plan put in place since the foundation of time that Jesus would have to come, suffer, and die for our salvation and what's beautiful here is Jesus is committed to obey the Father's will at any cost. I like that he says that after three days, he will rise again. Even there, we have a picture of Easter. They're not understanding it yet, that he's going to rise in three days. But Jesus will be vindicated. He will show them who he truly is. Up from the grave, he arises, as we'll see later on. And so Peter now rebukes Jesus. Remember, this is not his expectation. These are not his aspirations for the Messiah. And so he rebukes the Lord in verse 32. Do you know the word here is so strong that it's the same word that's used to cast out demons? 
It's the same word that is used to silence demons. That's how strong this word is about rebuking Jesus. And so Jesus is there being rebuked by Peter. Think about it. Peter, the great rock last week, is now the stumbling stone this week. See, I'm, I can see him putting his arm around Jesus saying, Jesus, there's no way. You must be mistaken. Let me correct you. <laughs> you're, you're, you can't be going to a, a cross and going to suffer and die. Things are just starting to move forward now. Things are just starting to happen. How can this be? And so he could not get his mind around the idea that the suffering Messiah was Christ's destiny and role. Suffering messiahs is what they had already seen with all these fraudulent so-called messiahs and leaders that all ended up dead on a cross. This cannot be for Christ, our suffering messiah, no way. That would mean he's a loser, and we're part of a following a loser, and there is no way. That's unthinkable. And so in the midst of this, we see that Jesus now rebukes Satan and rebukes Peter. Get behind me or out of my sight, Satan. You are not setting your mind on or do not have the mind of the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow, that's a pretty hard scripture for Jesus to say that to Peter. See, Jesus is now trying to prepare his disciples about his destiny. And and just like in the wilderness, When Jesus came under temptation, the temptation was to get Jesus off God's destiny for him, God's plans and purpose for him. And so now Peter is becoming this stumbling block. Peter is becoming this roadblock and and actually tempting Jesus not to go through with what the Father's plan is. And so there's not a, a, Jesus is not saying that Peter is satanic. Jesus is saying that what is coming out of Peter's mouth is getting in the way of God's plan for him, and that is satanic. And I think as the church of Jesus Christ, sometimes we need to be careful how we pray, how we talk, because sometimes we don't want people to suffer. We don't want people to do certain things, and we will say stuff. And if we're not careful, we're asking people not to follow God's plan for their life. And that can actually be from the enemy. But you know what? Today, our main point is the suffering wasn't just Jesus' destiny. It was theirs too. It was also to be their destiny. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves And take up their cross and follow me. Very popular passage. See, cross-bearing is not just for the spiritual elite. I think we need to understand that today. Notice it says all. Uh, We notice right before this passage, it says that he now didn't just have the 12 with him, but he called the whole crowd who were following him, who were his disciples. And so he's saying it's for all disciples of Jesus Christ. See, sometimes I think we, we think in the church that we get this mindset that those, those that make sacrifices for Christ are the spiritual elite or the most mature Christian. You know, the apostles, the evangelists, missionaries, pastors, those mature believers. But Jesus is saying here for us that this is for all his followers, all his disciples. You call yourself a Christian today. 
See, there, there aren't different categories. There aren't, well, I'm a Christian and that person's a disciple and that person's meant to carry their cross. Because for Christ, there is only one. That is the disciple who denies self and takes up one cross and follows. Now, to deny self, what is that about? You know, often we struggle with that. Uh, what does that mean to deny self? We're in the season of Lent, and does it mean that I give up chocolate? <laughs> does it mean I give up sugar? Well, that is a, a sense of denial. Uh, when I was a child in the Salvation Army, we had an envelope called self-denial offering, and you would give up something and put it in the offering plate on behalf of missions. That's all positive things, but denial of self is so much more than that. There is this aspect of denying self that, that as I live according to the flesh, as Paul says, it's about my ego. It's about me. It's about my needs, my wishes, my wants. And everything I do is about my life and pleasing self. And, and, and so what happens when I come to Christ, I no longer live for myself. I live now for Christ. Christ becomes the center of my life. I no longer am at the center of my life. If you look at the sacrament of baptism, as we go under the waters of baptism, what do we say? Paul said it this way, I die to Christ and I come alive in him. Uh, just that sacrament, uh, taking the Lord's Supper together. We are partaking of his body that was nailed to a cruel cross. We are drinking the cup of suffering that says, yes, as a believer and a disciple of Christ, I am willing to put Christ above self. And so we realize that God now must be the center of our lives as believers and not all my wishes, my wants. I wish the Church of Jesus Christ could understand this and we could get there because often as a pastor, I'm sad to say I hear so much in the church about what about my worship, my songs, the programs for my kids and all of these things we hear. But the Christian faith is not about that. It's about me putting my wishes and wants aside and picking up his. That's what it means. Christ over self. Some have thought it's self-rejection or self-hatred. My friends, it's not that because it is when we die to self that we come alive. And it's where we really find our purpose and destiny and fulfillment. So it's, it's not self-hatred or self-loathing. It's actually coming in underneath the new Adam and experiencing life to the fullest. Because I no longer live according to the flesh. I live according to the spirit of God. And then we're told that we are to take up our cross and follow. Now, if you notice today, I wore my gold cross because of this slide that was going up. You see, it's easy to put a cross around our necks. Oh, we like our crosses on the walls that are all shiny and pretty. You've heard people talk about that before. And, and so there's, if I wear this, nothing wrong. If I put that up on the wall, nothing wrong. But it should be a reminder to me that daily I am taking up my cross and following Christ. As I look in the mirror or feel it around my neck, I know there was a while where you would give out crosses and it was cross in my pocket. So men, when they would go into their hand to get a quarter or a loony, they would feel the cross in there. The reason for that is that we don't worship gold and we don't worship a cross in our pocket. But it was to be that reminder, yes, I'm taking up my cross today. 
I'm going to follow Christ today. See, for them, the cross was an instrument of shame. This was real. <laughs> they grew up walking the roads around Rome, uh, Roman roads around Jerusalem, and people were crucified. Can you imagine? You're walking up to Jerusalem for worship, and to your right and to your left are Roman crosses of people in agony being crucified. This was a reality for them. This wasn't some mystical idea. It's believed that during the life of Jesus alone, about 30,000 people were crucified right there. 30,000 crucifixions. And so I can imagine the disciples, as they hear Jesus say this, they immediately pictured a poor condemned soul walking along the road, carrying the instrument of his execution on his own back. And a man who took up his cross began his death march carrying the very beam on which he would soon hang. It's interesting because Paul talks to the church in Galatia about it. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We call that the cruciform life, that our lives are to be crucified with Christ. What does it mean to carry our cross? Now, when we lived in Europe and Italy and we were working with heroin addicts, we used to have a lot of mothers in Italian would say, oh, that's my cross to bear. My son is a, an addict and that's my cross to bear. And, and we'll hear that often. People will say that a trial or a difficulty or an illness or a handicap, that's my cross to bear. Now, we do know Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh, and many people have thorns that they deal with, but that's not your cross because really the cross of Christ is only that thing that is causing you to go through suffering for his sake, for his name, being ridiculed, left out in our world today. I think of those that have refused to work on a Sunday and then lost a job because somebody else was willing to work on Sunday. That is a cross. So it's not just trials and hardships. I want to bring to our attention, too, today that we don't take up his cross. Notice that. We're told to take up our cross. His cross was his alone, and it was his cross because he was fully God and fully man that atoned for everyone's sin. As we said, 30,000 were crucified around Jesus' life, and so people were crucified. That's nothing new. It was the fact that he was sinless God's son that was nailed to that cross that paid for our sin. So we don't take up his cross. So what is our cross? We're told that Christ carried his cross when he was obedient to the Father's plan for his life, when he was obedient to God's given destiny for him. You see, I can't do that for anyone else. I can't take up your cross, you can't take up mine. Uh, taking up my cross is when I'm willing to say, yes, Lord, and amen to your will. <laughs> what is your will for me? Uh, I want to follow your God-given plan and destiny for my life. And so taking up my cross and you taking up your cross is being obedient to God's will for our lives. 
We're told here to follow, and the actual word follow here comes from a Greek word that says to take the same road as another. It implies that we don't even really come behind Jesus. What we do is we walk with him. And so there is this sense of companionship as we pick up our crosses and walk with the Lord, and the Lord walks with us, that we are following the way of the cross, the life of the cross. My friends, this is not a popular message in our day, <laughs> but it is the gospel. It is the truth. See, my whole life is now characterized by habitual coming alongside Jesus and taking up my cross. Luke has added the word daily. It's a daily decision. It's a moment-by-moment -moment decision. I like what somebody said. Jesus is not inviting us on a pleasant afternoon hike. <laughs> but on a walk into danger and risk, the cruciform life. Jesus, I don't know if you can read that, but it says, how to live the cruciform life, fall at the foot of the cross, die to self, pick up your cross, live to glorify God, and love others like God loves you. Verses 35 to 37 Jesus says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The psyche is the actual word here, soul. God is saying is of great worth. We, we think our world, so many things are of great worth, but God is saying one simple single soul is of great worth to him. Jesus, someone said it this way, Jesus didn't desire to overthrow earthly powers, but to overthrow once and for all the greatest enemy, Satan, and the power of sin and death. It wasn't about Israel being set free from the Roman oppression, but it was about all people being set free once and for all from Satan's oppression, death, and sin. And not even the whole world. You could own the whole world today, and it could not purchase one soul. Only the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ can purchase that soul. And it tells us today it is of great worth to God. I like what missionary Jim Elliott, who lost his life as a martyr, this phrase we've heard often in the church, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's a wonderful poem called God Counted Crosses. Expressed poetically, I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while he counted losses. I counted my worth by things gain in store, but he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as he counted the hours on my knees. I never knew until one day by the grave how vain are the things we spend life to save. I did not understand until my loved one went above that riches is he who is rich in God's love. So as we bring this message to a close today, I said a few weeks back about unrealistic expectations lead to frustrations. I don't know what kind of expectations we've had of Christianity, of faith, of Christ, but they often can lead us to frustrations. 
This idea of no-cost discipleship, there is no such a thing. You can see it all throughout the gospel of Jesus Christ that he tells us that the follower of Christ is costly. It costs us everything. By denying oneself, taking up one's cross, and following Jesus, we are being obedient to God's will for our life. Whatever that is, that is our cross. This scripture, verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? It always resonates with me because my stepdad on his last day of life, he had been in the hospital. They were doing a routine surgery, but we found out later that he had um, heart medication that he had been taking for years that they forgot to give him all the days that he was in the hospital. And so on the very day that he was supposed to leave, he went into cardiac arrest. While he was in hospital, my mother and him were witnessing to the other three men in his room and telling them about faith and telling them about uh, Jesus and the church and all of his busyness in the church that he loved. Uh, he wasn't a person who spoke out. He was a person who greeted at the door and had lots of candy in his pocket for the children. That was part of his ministry. And yet when... He knew that something was going wrong, and he went into cardiac arrest, and they were wheeling him up to the CCU. We found out that everyone was telling us that what he said was this very verse. He was preaching to people in the elevator all the way up to CCU. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And so this verse has always stayed with me because of that reason. What has been your expectations of Christ? What has been your expectations of the church? <laughs> I'm sure we've never met them. We would let you down. What has been your expectation of being a Christian? You know, it's going to be like that square trying to fit into a circle. It's not going to fit. I love what Thomas Akempis said. He is that great leader of the church back from the 1300s. The famous book that he wrote was The Imitation of Christ. He had this to say. Jesus today, imagine now, this is from the 1300s. Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as drinking the cup of suffering. Many that revere his morality, few that follow him in the indignity of the cross. Many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them. Many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while, they fall to complaining or become deeply depressed. Those who love Jesus for his own sake, not for the sake of their own comfort, bless him in time of trouble and heartache as much as when they are full of consolation, end quote. Jesus isn't calling, as someone put it this way, it's quite a statement, going to ask the worship team to come. Jesus isn't called to pour syrup on everybody's waffles. He didn't come to fit your expectations. He didn't come to fit my expectations. We have said as a church, in the past, 
He is the great I am. Therefore, we are the great what? I am nots. I am the great I am not. It is not about me. It's always been all about him. And so it's time to leave our misguided expectations at his feet, to deny ourselves, to each one of us take up our cross, and to follow him. Let's pray.